0: so you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
0: running out of time and need inspiration for a last-minute Christmas present? Well, why not give your friends or family the chance to spend time with some of the world's most brilliant minds with the Intelligent Square Plus gift subscription. For $14.99 a month, you can watch live-streamed events with some of the biggest minds in the world, ask your questions, vote in motions, and you can watch all of our events for the last 20 years back on demand, ad-free, whenever you like. Visit intelligencesquaredplus.com or click the link in our episode description and get yourself a gift subscription for a loved one today. You don't have to worry about delivery delays with this one. It will land in their inbox as soon as you wish. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. This week, we're highlighting 12 books of Christmas. Coming up on today's episode, we're listening to stories from Nigeria, Albania, and Jamaica. Stories of culture, identity, politics, and immigration told by three wonderful voices. First up, we're hearing from Vice Senior Editor, Dippo Foloyan, about the themes of his recent book, Africa is Not a Country. Here's Dippo in conversation with award-winning journalist, Yusra el
2: This book is, I wouldn't just say important, I would say critical. More than anything, it really felt like a labour of love. I could feel, you know, your love for Nigeria, your love for Lagos, for your family, for, for the culture as a whole and the continent as a whole. And that love really comes through so well and it feels like it's, it's kind of the fuel that drives the book, but I, but I don't want to speak on your behalf. I just want to ask you, you know, what drove you to write this book and and why now?
3: Well, first of thank you so much for agreeing to host this. Thank you so much to intelligence squared for having me. This book means so much to me. And I'm so thrilled that you sort of picked up on themes that really drove me to writing this book. Um, it's personal. It's about me. It's about my family. It's about our identities you know, one word that when I think about this book and why I started the opening chapter with a sort of section about my family and who we are is that fundamentally this book is about identities and it's about who we are. Mm. And unfortunately, as many people across the continent know, Africans are not necessarily appreciated for who they individually are, what their experiences are, uh, what their history actually is and what brought them to their present. It's far easier to lump us all together as one and assume that we all have the same shared experiences, the same knowledge, the same outcomes, the same futures, that we're helpless in changing our own personal destinies. And so what really motivated me was trying to get across the idea that this is a place of all kinds of experiences, all kinds of of personalities, um, all kinds of motivations. And to start with, you know, I think of my own family, you know, like many Nigerian families, we are, we're big, we're wild. There are so many different personalities, so many different motivations. You know, the idea of lumping us all as a family together is absurd, let alone doing it for mm. Nigeria, let alone doing it for Africa. And so for me, this is something that, you know, is personal to me um, and it means a lot to me. And it's something that's been on my mind uh, for a really, mm. really long time. And something that you said was that, you know, it's coming at a time of George Floyd, of sort of a, a global racial awakening, if you like. And so I sort of felt that this was the perfect opportunity to have this conversation, mm-hmm. to 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 bring it towards Africa and the historical way in which the continent has been treated as well as how it continues to be treated to this day. And I think that, you know, for me, it's just so essential that we have these conversations and we, we basically try our hardest to ensure that, you know, the younger generations don't continue to push the same stereotypes that have been pushed ever since the colonialists met at Berlin to try and carve up the continent. Mm. Um, you know, at some point mm. that has to stop. And when it does stop, I think that we can then start to really have serious discussions about the future of the continent and the future mm. of individual countries and how that can be how that can be progressed because, you know, these countries are incredibly young um, and there's huge Mm. opportunities for change and development, for, you know, all kinds of different avenues for every individual country to go down. And so I just think that, you know, until we start relating to these countries in a way that is actually based on, you know, what is actually going on in each individual region, a lot of that growth could potentially be
2: stunted. And how much research, it feels incredibly, well-researched. And it feels like, you know, I, I, I read a chapter and it feels like five books. I can already, I can feel five books. And then you managing to kind of streamline the information and present the salient facts. What was the research phase like for you?
3: Yeah. I mean, the research phase was extensive. You know, one thing that it, it, it's a mixture of sort of things that I've read for years and years and, you know, information I've been taking in and through my day job advice. Um, but specifically, you know, before, I started writing any chapter, you know, I'd make sure I did sort of months and months of research and reading and to better understand sort of for each topic, you know, even things in which, you know, I thought I had a pretty strong grasp on, to hear as many different voices as possible from around the continent, you know, both history is it's personal to people. It's not, I didn't want this to be an academic exercise, you know, mm. I, you, you want to mix both you know, historical information, with map reading, with novels as well, because that's such a great way of capturing feeling and tone and moments. Um, so I kind of wanted mm. to bring all that together, to tell a story that's accessible and understanding to people in a way that they can relate to their own experiences, you know. The best ways people have of relating to others who might have grown up in very difficult, different circumstances to them is by trying to connect certain shared histories Certain shared experiences mm. at homes, and a lot of the a lot of the things that people consider is you know very specific challenges to Africa are, are challenges that you know the Western world has has, has faced and continues to face, mm. but the difference is that, you know they've had hundreds of years to try and sort a lot of it out, whereas a lot of these African countries are uh, battling with very very short histories. So mm. you know I, I I ensured that you know I read widely but also kind of varied as well to hopefully create Mm. something that that feels like you know in some places it could feel like a novel could feel like an academic textbook but you know created both knowledge hopefully as well as feeling as well.
2: I mean you you made a point of saying shared experiences and I think that word is so crucial because it's shared not same you know it's it's understanding the continent as obviously a place with you know interconnected interwoven histories but that each place has its distinct culture and community and that brings me to the title of the book because africa is not a country has been a rallying cry for african writers commentators for 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 decades and why did you choose that title was it did it sort of summarize the the fight for you or what was it that made you think this is it? I've got to just do it. Go straight, straight to the point. Yeah, no, I
3: think you you absolutely nailed it there. It's been a rallying cry um, for for the continent for people in probably every single region. You hear it all the time. the The way in which people speak about the continent. You know, I get pitched stories every day from from writers who will say will will they'll want to publish something about a current trend in Africa but when you dig down into the story, they're really talking about maybe two countries, something that might happen in Mm. two countries, but they'll say, you know, this is something that's happening across Africa. It's like, well, that's not an African thing. You know, it might be a Mm. Zambian thing. It might be a Ghanaian thing. It might be, you know, an Egyptian thing, but this, you know, that doesn't mean that it's African. And Mm. that's okay. You know, we accept it in every other region of the world. It's something that we should also accept when we talk about African countries. Um, that mm. you know, there may be you know certain shared experiences, but there are there are countries that have been through similar things, but they've chosen very mm. different paths. Um, and mm. it's important to understand that because there could be a third country following behind who's about to face something similar. And by understanding the different paths that those countries went down, you know they can they can potentially choose a better path mm. that makes sense for them and their own people. And so that is something that's for me that constant reminder that that this is a place of 54 countries, 1.4 billion people, over 2,000 languages, you know, innumerable ethnic groups. It's a a complicated place and it should be respected as such.
2: I mean, you make the point in the book that you would never just say European as a blanket term. And honestly, when you think of lumping together France and Germany or Italy and Spain, it's just like, it's unheard of. It's completely
3: unthinkable for you know, the the whole of Europe to be judged based on, you know, Spain's COVID response, for example.
4: Mm-hmm. You know,
3: we, we we just would never do that. But it comes so easily when we talk about Africa. And that's the thing that, you know, really, really needs to to stop.
2: And it's also, I mean, as you say, um, there are rivalries in place. Yeah. <laughs> so just like for the French and the Germans, you know, Nigeria and Ghana, they have their rivalries. They have their, you know, historic differences and and respecting that is understanding
3: yeah exactly it's 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 not it's not trying to put up border walls between these countries trying to say you know everyone just ignore each other and leave each other alone it's respecting the richness of each individual nation um Mm. and by doing that you can then better understand how these countries when they choose to intertwine and how the region was created and 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 gives you a sense of, you know, what could happen in the future.
2: To move into sort of post, post-independence and, and leadership in Africa, I mean, you make the consistent point that Africa isn't home to ungovernable masses and isn't beholden to some curse of moral bankruptcy that keeps churning out, you know, autocratic despots, but but that the dictatorships on the continent are a result of complex historical processes and power dynamics. and. Fueled mostly by global geopolitics, or at least instigated by global geopolitics, and you look at seven case studies. So you look at Somalia during the Cold War era, Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Algeria, Equatorial Guinea post independence, Rwanda under Kagame, and Libya under Gaddafi. And it's it's a it's a range. You look at a range of countries and leadership styles. And I just wondered what what did you come away feeling was the strongest common thread? What was the sort of shared reality?
3: The most common thread was that. The impact of independence for leaders. Many of them were military men who fought incredibly hard for the independence of their nations. And, you know, they worked against incredible levels of white supremacy, incredible suffering, and racist, you know, racist inflictions upon their nations. And they fought incredibly hard and they fought incredibly long. Um, and eventually they won. Um, and what then followed was a period of time where you had these men who were certainly better suited for the battlefield at the top of their countries, and at that point it was difficult for them to give up power because they felt at the time that you know they they they'd been the ones to fight for their countries, they'd been the ones to 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 push the colonial powers out, and so in many cases. That was the initial dynamic that these countries had to had to deal with you know these these founding fathers who had 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 defeated incredible odds to 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 gain their country 's freedoms and so that dynamic plays out in in many circumstances and it and as, as as you rightly said you know these these are shared experiences, but the experiences differ you know some of these Some of these men were heavily influenced in the years after by Western powers who tried to try to play, continue playing ethnic groups off of each other, especially during the Cold War. Some of these military men were influenced internally by ethnic groups who felt like it was their turn to reap some of the rewards that maybe they were not able to reap when colonial powers had favoured other ethnic groups during the colonial era. So that, that, that was, you know, that's probably the biggest impact that, that on governance around the continent, but also just the fact that how many different ethnic groups are in each country, and the impact that the impact of Britain's divided rule policy, which deliberately found the most corrupt men within the country, armed them, people who were very slick to a bribe, gave them power and influence, and in some some of those cases were happier to hand over to those sort of people, and you know in in many cases many of those people are still alive today. You know, I use the example that in the book, you know, for Americans, you know, imagine if Alexander Hamilton was still walking around running for office. In many cases, that's that's what we have in in a lot of countries, and that that has an impact. It, you know, it, it, it's it's a thing that lingers in the background. So, but there there are all these dynamics at play. It's not just that you know Africans don't have any sense of the importance of democracy, or they don't understand they don't understand the importance of of, of community ownership, because that's largely what the continent was about before the colonial powers turned up. These there were there were there were lots of larger kingdoms, but many many people were living in smaller communities, and they were they were being governed in smaller communities where there was a lot of democratic say. There was there was a lot of there was a lot of sort of community input in how everyone was governed, and so that is all there in our in 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 the history of many countries. But it's something that was put to the test when the the colonialists turned up and broke everything up, divided about 10% of all ethnic groups were split up during the colonial era. That is an incredibly different dynamic to play out, especially in countries that border each other. And, you know, you have people of the same ethnic group living in different countries. That in itself creates a certain instability. And so, a lot of those, you know, with time, a lot of those challenges are being overcome in in some countries in other countries it might take more time but you you're seeing a lot of countries as they move further away from the independence era the influence of of, of a, a certain group of people is not as strong anymore and basic understanding between ethnic groups is getting better and better in in certain parts but again a lot of this isn't necessarily unique to africa you know you you see it all around the world you see in the UK, you know, there you have one school that has produced numbers of British Prime Ministers. You have in the US, you know, they're still struggling with the democracy and their most recent election, you had a sitting president challenge the challenge the results. The way that was reported is very different to the way that would have been reported if that was a, an African country. And so understanding the dynamics at play between, you know, founding fathers and, and Western influence is incredibly important to understand governance across the continent.
0: What do you get the person who has everything? How about time with some of the world's most brilliant minds? Intelligence Squared Plus gift subscriptions at $14.99 per month give access to our entire video library, as well as live-streamed events every week. You can pick the length of the subscription at the checkout, and best of all, there's no delivery time. Visit IntelligenceSquarePlus.com today, or click the link in our episode description to get yourself a gift subscription for a loved one today. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared. And to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on stage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one of the kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared. Next up, we have Albanian author and academic Lea Upi, whose unique memoir, Free, documents what it's like to come of age and what she calls the end of history. In conversation with The Guardian's foreign correspondent, Luke Harding, Lea recounts the fall of communism in Albania during the 90s and asks, what does it really mean to be free?
1: I'm absolutely delighted to introduce our... Guest tonight, Alea Upi, professor in political theory uh, in the government department of the London School of Economics, and of course author of the acclaimed new book *Free*, which we'll be talking about this evening. lay I mean, looking looking at your CV and your biography, I mean, you've written books on Kant's the philosopher, I think, too. You've you've written sort of uh, philosophical academic works, uh, and then you write this dazzling, funny memoir i mean why 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 the shift in in genre from from scholarship to uh, to personal so
5: it wasn't it wasn't intentional i guess like all good things or a lot of good things that happen aren't intentional i initially planned to write a book on freedom And I wanted to talk about freedom both as a moral ideal and as it's institutionalized, as it appears in different political systems and the extent to which these institutions reflect freedom or betray freedom. And uh, I wanted to write about it in connection to liberal and socialist traditions because one of my longstanding academic, theoretical, philosophical convictions has been that freedom is the common core of these traditions, both liberalism and socialism although a lot of people tend to think of liberalism as committed to this idea of freedom and socialism as committed to equality, I think what the socialist tradition in political thought does is to really radicalize the liberal idea of freedom and to talk about the ways in which in uh, capitalists' economic systems, it actually produces margins of unfreedom and produces oppression and exploitation in ways that don't really reflect this ideal of freedom that is at the heart of it as a philosophical tradition. So I wanted to write about ideas and I wanted to write about real world institutions and also how these ideas in some ways get distorted or reflected In real life. And I started thinking about examples because I was going to write a book for the mass markets. It wasn't going to be an academic book, so I wanted to communicate to a wide readership. And as I began to write this book, the more I thought about it, the more I thought about examples, the more they came from Albania and not just Albania, but my own early life in Albania. And so, in fact, I had memories of childhood and then teenage years and all these reflections on freedom were somehow, had somehow appeared one way or another in characters and so on. And so that's how it became more and more personal and took the project then took on a life of its own. And I was then abandoned to these characters that I remembered and began to use different material, stopped reading philosophy books, started going back to the diaries that I had kept as a child. And so then it it was an archaeological project in a way of recovery and discovery of an old self that I had kind of forgotten almost about
1: yeah i mean it's interesting and and you start with your um 11 year old old self i mean i mean the, the beginning of the book for those who haven't read it yet i mean i i guess we can do spoilers at this point but but you you, you it's december 1990 and you're on your way back from school and you are hugging Stalin I mean not literally Stalin obviously he's dead by that point but hugging a, a municipal statue of, of of Stalin. I mean that the, the whole passage is, is surreal and funny and mordant and, and, and arresting and then suddenly you hear these cries in the distance. I mean t- tell us about this incident and why you began your your book with that.
5: It was in December 1990 which is when things began to change in Albania. So 1990 rather than 1989 was the year of shifts and revolution for Albania. Uh, Albania was in 1990 very isolated country. It had been isolated for uh, most of the second half of the 20th century, but increasingly isolated. It began as an ally of Yugoslavia, then of the Soviet Union, then of China. And by the time in which I was growing up in the 80s, we were completely on our own. And the rhetoric in school was that we were on our own because we were the only country left on earth that was still committed to the ideals of communism and to socialism as the transition to communism. And so in moral education, we were told about how everybody else around us had betrayed the legacy of Stalin. But there was this one proud nation in the Balkans, which was still holding on to Stalin and holding on to the tradition and promoting these communist ideals. And in fact, the slogan was that Albania was the anti-imperialist lighthouse of the world. And so and I was fundamentally convinced of this. and, And and in fact, you know, we were told in school that we had it hard, that we were isolated because we were on the right side. And every time someone is on the right side, they're always fighting with the rest of the world because there's all kinds of motives that make people not want to do the right thing. And uh, so when this protest happened in 1990, there had been a few, um, so the year between 1989 and 1990, was a strange year for Albania because we were aware that things were changing in the rest of the world. But because we had been so cut off and so isolated from Eastern Europe, And because the discourse in Albania was that these East European countries had begun to abandon socialism long time ago. And in fact, Albania had, had left the Warsaw Pact in 1968 when the Soviet Union invaded Prague. So there was a criticism of these real world, other socialist states, which was part of the everyday discourse in Albania, which meant that all these changes that were swiping Eastern Europe around that time, we didn't feel that were changes that were touching Albania in a way. We felt kind of left out. Except things began to change in Albania as well. And somehow, uh, you know, as things happen, when revolutions happen, you never, you can never say there was this moment in which th- something changed. For me, the moment in which something changed was the moment in which I had stumbled in a protest by mistake, coming out of school and just going, taking the wrong way. And this is all writ- written in my diary of the time. And I started with that because I started with this diary and I remembered this episode of me hiding behind this statue of Stalin and i was really scared because there was this people shouting on the street and dogs barking and following them and i had gone to hide behind Stalin because i couldn't see any anywhere else where to hide But when I was hiding, I was also remembering my teachers. We did this class in moral education in school who kept saying, you know, Stalin had this very strange smile. You couldn't really see it because it was hidden by his moustache, but he would smile with his eyes. And somehow I I, I had written about this in in my diary as well, about Stalin's smile and his moustache and so on. And I remember when I was hiding behind this statue, at one point I lifted my head to see whether Stalin was really smiling with his eyes. And I was completely shocked because he had been decapitated. So the statue had lost its head. And this was, for me, the moment of revolution was a moment of seeing that somebody had stolen Stalin's head. And, you know, it's really hard to explain and to kind of convey to people how you could be really attached to this figure for all your life and think this is the most one of the most important people in the history of humanity and the moral leader and a kind of moral ideal and then somehow you realize that your fellow citizens or someone has out of the blue gone and done something which was completely inconceivable and why would they do that and in addition to that they were shouting freedom and democracy and i also remember thinking well why are they shouting freedom and democracy we have a lot of freedom we have a lot of democracy this is so that was a moment for me where i began to think that something was not as it appeared to be
1: and I mean, you, you write beautifully about how, uh, at that moment, at that point, you, you, age eleven, you were a believer. You were you were a pioneer. You you were, were an outstanding student. But your your parents, I mean, we'll, we'll talk more about them. But but their relationship to to power, power structures, uh, and to politics was always more ambiguous and evasive and strange. And there's a sort of mystery threading through the first half of the book about your family biography, which. You 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 tell tell de- de- delightfully, and again, I don't know if you want to sort of, you know, explain it or not. But it, it turns out you're not you were not quite the person you thought you were.
5: Yeah, and this word biography played a really important role because uh, it was the term that we invoked to explain things about people, and we would distinguish between people be- be- with good biographies and with bad biographies, people with stained biographies and people with clean biographies. And I remember that I was surrounded by this word in school and through television, at home and so on. And I didn't quite know what it meant. And as with all words where you don't really know what they mean, you don't, you're also afraid to ask because I think it's so obvious that, you know, you shouldn't be asking about it. But it has something to do with your family background. And one thing that I reflected on my family background from very early on as a child, because I knew that there was something about me that was different in in communist Albania. The one thing that was different and really stood out was the fact that my French was my first language. So people spoke French and my grandmother spoke French to me when I was growing up. And this was not common. And it was not common, not just because nobody would speak to their children in French, it was very unusual, but also because my grandmother wasn't French. She'd never been to France. She didn't have any relatives in France. She did. She spoke French with an Albanian accent, and I know this because whenever we watched television uh, and there were French films with subtitles, I could see that her accent was different from the actors of sort of French of French people. But somehow I had been brought up speaking French and I knew there was something to do with my family. And my grandmother always said, oh, it's because we like the French Revolution or, uh, you know, you liked Le Misérables, which we used to read and, at school. And, and, and there was a puppet show with Cosette and so on. So there were always these kind of cultural reasons. And then another thing that really stood out was that in communist Albania, everyone had photos of Enver Hoxha in their living room. And... I remember I was completely obsessed with why we didn't have a photo of Enver Hoxha. And my parents kept finding excuses and saying, well, we need a nice frame. We've ordered the frame, but it's not coming. We're waiting for your birthday. We're waiting for this to happen. So somehow it was never the right time to put a photo of Enver Hoxha. I I remember, especially after his death, I was completely troubled by the fact that we didn't have a photo of Enver Hoxha and I was so committed, really wanted to meet him. When he died, all the work collectives in Albania went to pay tribute to the grave and I was begging my father to take me when his work would go, and somehow he didn't bring me. And these were, I remember all these tr- sort of childhood moments where I don't remember exactly how, you know, the lead up to these events, but I do remember this sensation of my parents were letting me down because I had this commitment to communism from school and, and, and in general, I was really persuaded. And my parents somehow were very, um, quite strange about it. They wouldn't say don't do it or they wouldn't say we don't want a photo of Enverhoja. In fact, they would, every time I brought it out explicitly, they'd say, of course we want it. Of course we love Enverhoja and so on. But they actually never did it and never brought the photo.
1: But there's a kind of mysterious sort of ghost in 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 your family biography. There was a, a, another Upi who was a kind of notorious fascist collaborator, traitor and so on. And you were sort of confidently told when you were young that you had nothing to do with him, that he was... He was not related to you, but but that also turned out it turned out to be slightly more complicated than that, didn't it?
5: Yeah, this also was an yearly recurrence, actually, not just because we studied about him in history classes in school. He was the equivalent of the um, of the Petain, so he was the equivalent of the kind of a head of the Vichy government who would have handed over the. Albanian uh, crown from King Zog who was in power at that point in the late 30s to the Italian fascists who had already colonized Albania de facto, but not officially. So there were all these years in the 30s where Albania was increasingly subject to Italian influence. But there was this pivotal moment where at some point the Italians invaded. And this character was there to give the crown of the king from the king who had been his former uh, collaborator to these new italian masters and this was and he was in every history class as you can imagine in communist albania talking about fascism and the resistance and so on every albanian had basically had a, a family relative or a grandfather who fought in the resistance and then there was this we didn't have anyone who fought in the resistance that was one problem the second problem was not only did we not have anyone who was fighting in the war but also the only person that we could relate to in history because we had the same surname was this fascist collaborator and so this was a huge source of disappointment and my family always said to me we're not related he just happens to have the same surname he also happened to have the same name as my father so it was name and surname was the same thing so i could not not be asked about this character every year but somehow i had to explain to my f- school friends that we didn't have anything to do with him and that it was just a coincidence until it turned out in 1990 when things changed in albania that it wasn't a coincidence that in fact he was my great-grandfather and that my father was called the same as his granddad basically because also this is what they did in this sort of big families they would call after you know uh ancestors in a way so yeah, that was one of the mysteries of childhood, eventually revealed in nineteen ninety, which was really again a, a big surprise and blow in a way.
1: And I mean, you, you write wonderfully about your your childhood, but also your book is a, is a is a is a complex and and delightful portrait of a marriage and and your your grandmother as well, who's this sort of luminous presence throughout the book and to, to whom you dedicate it. And I, I mean, I just sort of wonder you know what how did you feel about sort of reconstructing your 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 parents conversations and 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 their adult relationship which i mean i mean they were both high achieving but in some ways as you tell it somewhat incompatible, almost sort of dialectically incompatible, you could say.
5: Yeah, the way I was brought to it was I was always sensitive to these different ideas of freedom and uh, to the nuances of talking about freedom, actually. So I got to the book with characters, as I said, and, and with personal histories and with details and family stories and so on, and Family Conflicts as well, it turned out to be a very different book from what I had initially imagined. But what I had initially imagined was a book on freedom and the different ways in which people talk about freedom and the ways in which they understand freedom and how they project it to different social systems. And when I then began to think about characters, I realized that one of the reasons I had been so attracted to these very different ideas of freedom, and in fact, one of the reasons why I find myself being really tolerant of also people who have completely opposite views politically to mine was that, in fact, I had lived in this family where all these completely opposite political opinions had coexisted, not just in the family among relatives, but actually in a marriage. So my parents couldn't be more different from each other. And in fact, when I reflected on this later on, I realized that my mother had what one might call this very liberal, classical liberal idea of negative freedom. So she always thought you are free if nobody stops you from doing things like traveling, going somewhere or dressing in a certain way or saying certain things in public. And this animates all her struggles in the book. And in fact, it also animates all the struggles of all the Albanians who thought they were leaving behind state socialism because they wanted to leave behind state interference in a way. And my father, on the other hand, had this very, very different idea of freedom, which I, you know, I associated later on to positive freedoms, this idea that it's not just about being free from something, but you also have to have the freedom to achieve a certain conception of yourself and to realize certain opportunities. And so it's not enough, you know, and he always said this, it wasn't enough to be stopped from doing certain things. You are only free if you have opportunities to also realize these ambitions. And in fact, his dilemmas became particularly relevant in the second half of the book and in sort of in the Albania of post 1990, Because he had grown up with this very idealistic account of what freedom and what kind of society he wanted to live in. And he thought Albania was going to become that society until he was in a position of responsibility in post-1990 Albania and he was the CEO of the port of Douros. And he was in charge of enacting these uh, structural reforms that came to Albania with the help of the World Bank and the IMF and this idea of sort of shock therapy and quick liberalization of the country. And he was in a position of power. So he actually had to make decisions about making people redundant. And he found this extremely, extremely burdensome. Whereas for my mother, it was this is just a cost of transition. The market requires that people be laid off. They will find other opportunities. Everyone needs to fend off for themselves. It's nobody's job to protect these people. My dad really struggled with it because he couldn't accept that, you know, the state could just leave people or an institution could just leave people unprotected and defenseless. And 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 I remember because these were years in which he was he was he was kind of anxious as a person. My mother was very different. She was very confident and she was completely fearless. And my dad has always been very anxious and very worried about things. And this was in, when he was in this position of responsibility, the conflict between the two became most vivid because they had such different worldviews which were clashing in this new society that we were living in.
0: For the final conversation in today's episode, we're hearing from cook and food writer, Melissa Thompson, whose new book, Motherland, A Jamaican Cookbook, celebrates the culinary culture and global influence of the Caribbean nation. Melissa was joined in conversation by Riaz Phillips, talking about their shared passion for Jamaican cuisine and its place in the British food scene.
4: In terms of your personal relation to Jamaica, your family are Jamaican?
6: Yeah, so my dad's Jamaican, my mum is Maltese, and my dad's family came over in the 50s and they settled in Darlington in the northeast and my dad joined the Navy at 17 so kind of moved around was stationed abroad like was on ships and things and then ended up settling in Weymouth uh, in Portland actually Portland and Dorset where there was a naval base and he never because of which I think is quite a common story actually I'd be interested to know if you've got any kind of similarities so his parents left him in Jamaica and then sent for him when he was nine years old and at first he was with his, his grandmother but he loved it but like she was really Loving and and it was great. And then when she passed away, he was put into the care of his uh, paternal grandfather. And he didn't have a very great time. His paternal grandfather was quite was quite violent. And my dad. You know, he he never went to school, and only recently I heard him describe himself as a farmer because he'd help, kind of, you know, like digging up stuff, like planting things. And he just remembers having to walk miles and miles to go, like to the kind of different fields, having to go and dig up stuff, and being sent to go and do this or catching Jenga down at the, the stream down the bo- bottom of the land. So he came over to England when he was nine and didn't have a great time here either. And he you know, had siblings who were now stra- who were strangers to him; he'd never met them. And then he joined the navy at seventeen, and and he because of his experience in Jamaica it was really weird like because we, we went to Malta a lot where my mum comes from but we ne- there was never really much discussion about going to Jamaica and I think well now we've ha- had lots of discussions about it and it's because he didn't have a fond memory of it because it was just kind of you know his, his memory of it was quite violent and so then we ended up going I think I was about 30 when we went um, and it ended up being a, a bit of an accident because we were meant to be going to Japan for my brother's wedding and your sister-in-law's Japanese and then there was the tsunami so the flights got cancelled but we couldn't get a refund and we could only kind of transfer them somewhere else and so we were like well let's go to Jamaica and so that was the first time we went and it was um it was quite a fraught trip it was quite emotional and I mean, obviously, as well, obviously the cost of going to Jamaica as well, like we would go to Malta all the time because it was cheap. We had like free accommodation there. And so there was kind of quite a few obstacles going to Jamaica. And it was just, it was just, man, I'd been to Antigua before then. And I loved it. It was the first kind of like first time that i had been to, you know, like a sort of a black majority country and it just felt nice and it just felt good. And um, Jamaica was a bit more fraught because of all the emotions. But um, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of it. That, that was my sort of my earliest relationship. My dad would cook a lot of Jamaican food all the time. And obviously when you go to gatherings and stuff, there'd be kind of those, like Jamaican, like your usual kind of like fry fish, you know, patties and, and things like that. And it was just always... I guess it was always, for me, because I grew up in Weymouth, it was always quite compartmentalised. It was either in the home, in families' homes, but it was always, we would go to have Jamaican food somewhere and, or we'd have it cooked at home. It was never kind of, there wasn't any Jamaican community in Weymouth, but whatsoever, whatsoever. I don't know any other Jamaicans who were in Weymouth. And so it was kind of very much something that we had at home or we had at our, our relatives' homes. Yeah, I think it's
4: interesting growing up in, especially in a place like London, uh, for the Jamaican diaspora because as you mentioned um, a lot of people who came to Britain came as a result of some kind of distress or trauma you know and so they have that kind of self-separation between them and the Jamaica where they're obviously really proud of the culture and love it but they themselves don't physically really want to go back and I always found it interesting how that kind of contrast to a lot of us who grew up in Britain usually have a lot of friends who aren't from the Caribbean overwhelmingly white friends who have probably been to the Caribbean more than a lot of us have been ourselves. And, you know, as a result of the nature in which they travel to the islands, a lot of them have this like really wonderful time and they spend time there and they have the resources to travel there when a lot of the diaspora themselves haven't gone back. And obviously their relationship with the island is very much different. So there's always that interesting like dichotomy.
6: Can I ask you a a quick question, Riaz, just on the basis of that? Because you grew up in London. So did you have a similar... Because I guess I've always got this idealized vision of what it would be, would have been like had I grew up, grown up in London or, you know, another another area with a kind of stronger D- Jamaican diaspora. And I don't know if that, you know, since I've spoken to other friends, and actually some friends, even if they've grown up in London, still kind of have a similarity of experience. In terms of this separation and, you know, and what you were saying about having this kind of the, the, the dichotomy of people who, so the diaspora, but then other, or other people who maybe have access and the, the means to be able to travel. I mean, I I guess from what I know about you in your books and the the reason that you wrote Bellyful, that part of that was because this is the food. It was kind of all around you, but you didn't really see it celebrated in the mainstream.
4: I think the interesting part of what makes Caribbean food is that taking that understanding of it, that all Caribbean food is just a version of food, you know, like the roots of that food inherently all come from different places. um, And the reasons that they changed And the ingredients in them that are changed up Uh, there are so many different reasons behind that you know availability and climate and so i do often wonder what what perhaps makes something authentic just because it was made in jamaica versus something that was made in britain by people of jamaican descent in the same way that food was made in jamaica by people of west african descent like was their food inherently less authentic than the food in West Africa, just because they weren't there anymore. And so.
6: Uh, but I, yeah, but this is, I mean, cause I don't, I don't talk about like, authenticity. I think it, authenticity is, it's not a word that I, I, I talk about appropriation. Um, but I, I don't think I said the word authentic, did I? Cause for me, food is constantly evolving. And I think often people think that say like in this moment, right now on this day that this is like the end point it's like no food is always evolving like in 50 years time dishes gonna look different my grandparents would have had to i'm sure use alternative ingredients when they came to the uk because they couldn't get certain dishes like they probably couldn't get Kalaloo at first and things like that so you make do with what's available like if i'm just making joke, then if i'm joking something i will use bay leaves and i'll use pimento berries because that's what i can get hold of easily rather than trying to get pimento woods to do it quote marked authentically and i think sometimes people especially from within the communities can be quite like really protective of the way that they do things and to them that is the only way like i've got i've i've got into kind of not arguments but these kind of tennis match things with people about you know whether jamaican curries have tomatoes in them and they're they're like jamaican curries don't have tomatoes and i was like well my curry chicken does and they're like yeah but jamaican it's like well do you know what i mean i i do my dad does my grandma put tomato like so. So who's saying that Jamaican And why are you saying that? Like, why is there this kind of protectiveness over over Jamaican food to the point where people are like, "That's not how you do it." Like, I, I don't think I would. Oh, well. I do say, actually, I no, that's that's a lie. I was about to say, I don't think I do that. I do, like, when people, like, there's, there's certain, like, sort of celebrity chefs I've seen putting, like, jalapeno peppers in uh, in their jerk marinades and stuff like that, and that kind of bothers me because it's like anyone who has any idea of Jamaican food knows that jerk is, like, Scotch bonnets, right? And, and so I find that kind of, like, I don't even think you can get, I don't know, I'm sure jalapenos, maybe you can get them in Jamaica. They grow in Jamaica as far as I know, well they haven't historically been grown. And and it's when things like that are presented as being a certain way, and, and it's like... If someone wanted to say, right, jerk is normally made with scotch bonnets. However, one day I didn't have any scotch bonnets. So I put it with jalapenos and and it was quite interesting. I don't know, like that would sit better with me than someone just kind of presenting it as though this is because for a lot of that people's audience, that is a white chef who's got a massive white audience. And then people are like, oh, right. Okay. So you make jerk with jalapenos. Who knew? Yeah.
4: It's often the case of the rarity in which a lot of people of those platforms often share their space and give their space to people actually of different cultures to, you know, comment on different uh, nuances in the cuisine yeah as you said they'll just um they'll present it in a way of which they can use ingredients from the local supermarket and just claim that as a thing it can be very damaging actually
5: yeah
6: it's re- it's really damaging and also I-, I find it like extremely frustrating i mean it's something that you see on social media all the time but there was another chef and he did a suya recipe and I-, and I was just like why not take that opportunity and there's no kind of reference to where where he got the recipe from and i just think well why not use that as an opportunity to platform someone who knows this food and be taught by them and have a conversation because ultimately, if you're broadcasting this, that's going to be a much more interesting video of someone talking about the origins of Suya and what goes into it, and talking about where it's cooked and who cooks it traditionally, and kind of then kind of getting into the different tribes. and I just view these things as missed opportunities, and there's almost an assumption that audience isn't interested and maybe they're not and maybe i just don't understand people but i, I find it always a bit quite
4: sad i mean you'd assume that there was an interest in terms of the fact that it's happening and it's occurred and it's been signed off by someone to say oh why don't you do something of this nature with jerk or seer, or so often so it seems like there is that taste for it and i think anyone who spends time in any food capacity especially in london and the southeast knows there's an overwhelming demand for food from from different cultures and cuisines, and there has been for decades now. I guess um, it's just who gets to be the face of that and who gets to present that.
6: Yeah, totally. And I, I always think, I, like, I get the impression that that there's a belief that there has to be a, a white middleman to present it to the the majority or to present it to the mainstream, and and that frustrates me because it's um, ultimately, I think it's it's theft, it's cultural theft because they they have they have taken that recipe from somewhere and they're not giving the people who who are connected to that culture their dues.
4: Yeah, and I guess circling back to motherland as well I guess the reason obviously that's obviously important as as a result of the kind of context of this conversation which is happening in the middle of I always say quote unquote black history month but in reality it's British history month you know recent Jamaican history is not in a vacuum Um, it's not something that happened separate to British history it's very much part of British history and so yeah this continued appropriation of the labor uh, and the resources of the Caribbean by people of British descent is an important conversation to have
6: yeah, for sure. And I, I don't think it does get celebrated, sort celebrated as it should and, and recognised. And I think with Black History Month, I, I find myself, I, I think in some respects, it's, you know, it's sort of good things happen. But I think this separation kind of perpetuates that in a way, you know, it, it perpetuates this idea that, that black people and black history and black experience exist outside of the mainstream. And, and that's quite difficult. So
4: you're based now in London. So I'm interested from your perspective, how you see the place of Jamaican food in London in the Southeast and on your travels in the many like food and cooking events you do, like the reception to it and um, where it sits in that context of gentrification in Britain and whether that people of Caribbean descent are adequately platformed.
6: Uh, No, I don't think people of, of Caribbean descent are adequately platformed. I think Britain as a whole... The whole language uh, mindset around food isn't geared up for that at present because there is still this very eurocentric (laughs) idea of food and that french food reigns supreme i mean look at all the language right and and one of my friends myself from Q Point, she said that it, everyone's having trouble recruiting chefs. And she said, but we're not because the language they recruit them with, they don't use like, you know, shift de party and sous chef and all this sort of stuff. They just have it, I don't know how they describe it, but they just use sort of British language that is easy for people to understand. So, so the language itself isn't a barrier to entry. And I think that's really, I think that's really interesting for me. And like, you know, obviously I can see gentrification happening, especially in the kind of the areas where there's been kind of a history, uh, sort of a strong black British history Peckham and Brixton and being in in Southeast London, they're the places that are closest to me. And it's really weird because on one hand, I can see that that's happening and I know it's happened and I can read people who've, who've written about it, who've grown up in London. But then for me, as someone who's come from Weymouth, where it was just overwhelmingly white those places are still going to be like really nice for me to be to be in because it's it's kind of there is still a lot of sort of black culture and black food and and, and it, it is difficult so if i've got this kind of inner turmoil of what i know is happening and what those places mean to me and how comfortable i i i feel in them i mean i feel comfortable in all of london really apart from west london i feel comfortable everywhere and, and that's why i love this city more than anything because it's just there's like a degree of anonymity whereas if i leave it and i go to i don't know we went on holiday to somewhere in the west country I come from the West Country, and especially being in, in a same-sex relationship with a daughter, and I like kind of, you know, I, I just sometimes feel that I sort of stand out. So, like London's my sanctuary. But I, I think the food scene here, I think, is is like very slowly changing, and I think there are some like really good events. Like I did meet I've done Meetopia for the last couple of years, and and sort of Molly who organises that, I think is is keen to platform people from all over because she knows that these are stories that haven't been told that they are stories that deserve to be told and the food is going to be good and the food's going to be interesting and I think that's why that event is so successful like I, I get the impression Rias, that you're a bit more kind of um, sensible when it comes to saying yes to things whereas sometimes I can kind of say yes to things and, and I then regret it there's been a few other re- events I've done over the summer and I can see that I've just been parachuted in because they, they looked at the lineup and they're like oh man it's, it's really white right? we, need to get some, we need to get someone who's black and in that space I just felt like I haven't really belonged and it's not it's not my space, it's not kind of yeah i don't feel comfortable i'm not made to feel comfortable and i'm there purely on a quota basis and so that's difficult And like we, so at meetopia we did jerk um we did jerk chicken and uh, last year we did jerk pork and it was just and it's just nice and, and people there are the people who come up they're quite geeky about food and so they wanted to know like last year i had kind of scotchies from that uh, i brought back from jamaica and i had like proper pimento berries and so and, and everyone wanted to know about it they wanted to know what i've been smoking on and, and stuff like that i did it with maureen time and that was really special but then uh, there are other events and, Things and I think generally there there has always been still that kind of separation and and also in terms of having restaurants and stuff Jamaican restaurants but then I but then I kind of wonder I don't know like what would a Jamaican restaurant look like I, I guess there's like Negroni in Brixton I mean there are a few other places but yeah I, I think generally there's still a way to go. I think we're drawing to the end
4: of our discussion. Maybe we can both do this in terms of maybe picking out two or three recipes that we would give to those people. Who never tried Jamaican or Caribbean food? What your kind of go-to's would be for them?
6: So this would be like a, a supper club, right? So if they came round, or they came round for dinner, what would all be on the menu? I guess. Or,
4: this, or if they even wanted to cook dinner for their friends and they'd never cooked it before.
6: Oh man, I like trying to get me to d- like decide, and I feel like it, I mean, in, in my like my saltfish fritters, I don't put Scotch bonnets in them because I serve them with with pepper and mayo on the side, and because my daughter can't handle any sort of spice, and so that's just how I that's how I do them, and, and I think they're they're. Really good. I think. I think having having run down But I mean, for me, I'm, I'm probably going to go like like curry chicken or curry goat. And, and I think and explaining how like the ingredients work. So yeah, with the Scotch bonnet, like just put it in whole for like half an hour and then take it out. So you're getting a bit of that flavour. Or just tell people they can kind of deal with it how they want to. Yeah, they want something really hot. Put the whole thing in. It's such a kind of unique curry dishes that I think they're just delicious. But then oh, there's also kind of oxtail as well, which I think is amazing. Okay, so I have. In fact, no. Aki and saltfish no saltfish fritters I'm, I'm I'm doing it as a menu realize. uh saltfish fritters then curry goat and then in fact I'll have a soup as well um chicken soup chicken soup spinners what about you
4: hey, well, I go to that I've been giving people recently is um is a sweet potato chickpea and coconut milk curry slash stew however you want to term it is it something that I think the process in making it is something that's quite underlying in the book in terms of how you work with creating like a spice mix to make a curry. Um, But at the same time, I still feel like a lot of people are daunted by starchy vegetables, particularly yams, cassava, things like that. So it starts with sweet potato, but also says, you know, you can actually use anything, sweet potato, regular potatoes, cocoa yams, dashi, whatever you want to call it. Um, And also players on this idea of interacting with foods that are actually foreign, but yet somehow people have come to accept them as day-to-day ingredients. So like namely chickpeas, like chickpeas are not native to Britain by any means, but yet somehow that's become a part of everyday British language. And it's kind of playing with the idea of like, how, how does that happen? How does it happen that something like chickpeas can become Something that people have no fear of interacting with, but they suddenly draw the line that they're planting or okra. And yeah, it's also super easy to make just like a lot of one-put style dishes.
6: It's really true, actually, because you look at stuff like quinoa, right, and botaga and stuff like that, which people kind of... I guess it's just when they get they get platformed in, um, in magazines and things, I think, like look at the effect that Delia Smith had on on food and she'd talk about an ingredient and then suddenly you couldn't get it anymore. Or like Ottolenghi, you know, him writing about certain ingredients and how that's just kind of transitioned in the mainstream until it becomes ordinary. These things that once seemed exotic become almost commonplace.